coming to you from my last day in quarantine here in New York. This is the Sea Change Podcast, and I am your host, Ellen Mahoney. Today is a good day. I just got uh, my PCR test results, and I am negative for COVID, which means I can break my quarantine today and check in on my parents here in Long Island, New York, which is a great privilege, and so it is something I am going to really treasure and appreciate. Before we dive into our conversation with Joshua Friedman, I wanted to just thank everyone for the tremendous support you all have shown for this podcast. Your support means so much to me, and it helps me continue to get some great content out there for all of you. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. That helps me continue to do this work. I also just wanted to let you know that we've got some exciting things coming up. On February 24th, we have our signature resilience course through the Circulus Institute. And this one is specifically designed for student and teacher support staff. So counselors, pastoral staff, social workers, school psychologists, instructional coaches, and learning specialists. And it's a great opportunity to come together, um, connect with other colleagues of yours from around the world, support each other, but also reflect on this year, create or enhance strategies that can help you to thrive through the end of this year and get ready for next school year. If you're interested, you can go to thecirculusinstitute.org and sign up. Uh, It starts February 24th. It's a three-week course, and you'll want to get your registration in by uh, the 19th of this month. The other thing I'm excited about is I have decided to take all of the wisdom and research and practices I've gleaned over the last almost 20 years in the mentoring field and put these insights into an online course for schools around the world, for international schools around the world. There are two tracks. One is for our mentors or advisors who are actually on the ground facilitating advisory or mentoring sessions with their students. And we'll focus on things like relationship skills and managing group dynamics and that sort of thing. Then the other track is for the leaders of these programs. So whether these are Um, heads of grade or vice principals or principals or deans of students. We will talk about effective program design, effectively supporting your mentors or advisors, making sure your program is sustainable and aligned with best practices and safe for your students. So I'm excited to put that out there. It's coming soon. If you're interested, definitely let me know so I can add you to the list once we release the pilot. And um, you can reach me at ellen at seachangementoring.com. And I will sit, I'll have all that information in the links in our episode notes. But today we're going to be talking with Joshua Friedman. He is the CEO of Six Seconds, which is the Emotional Intelligence Network. And some of you may already be familiar with his work as Six Seconds trains coaches to work with other people in developing emotional intelligence. He's going to share a little bit about his own story, how he came to being such a passionate advocate. We talk about the role that equity and privilege play in our discourses around emotional intelligence. We'll talk about the move from the belief that emotional and social contexts inhibit or promote learning to this shift of learning is a social brain function. And we'll talk a little bit about advisory as well. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. He's a very passionate 
person about emotional intelligence. And this is not someone that's just jumping on a trend right now. He's been doing this work for 20 years. And it's the kind of work that Six Seconds has done that is the foundation for a lot of the social emotional learning work that she might be exploring right now. So I'm really excited to be talking to Joshua Friedman, and we'll go ahead and get started right now. Welcome to the podcast, Joshua Friedman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. I'm excited to have you here. I know a lot of people in our listening audience are very interested in emotional intelligence. My first question, just to get us started, just to make sure we're all starting from the same place, is can you just explain what is emotional intelligence? Well, the simplest answer I could come up with, I was going to be presenting to a group of seven-year-olds. And so this back at the time, I had a five-year-old and I said, okay, let me try to explain this to you. And I got some feedback that my explanation was not very good. Uh, (laughs) What I ended up with is emotional intelligence means being smarter with feelings. Now, my my earlier draft, one of them was Mm -hmm. smarter about feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think this really helps illuminate what emotional intelligence is all about. Because there are a lot of people who are smart about feelings. There's a ton of emotions researchers I know who just, they know a ton about feelings, but they have a lot of trouble with feelings. So when we're being smart, smarter with feelings, it's acknowledging that emotions are part of the way our brains work. Acknowledging that every thought that we have is intertwined with emotion. Mm -hmm. And I know it's, I know it's much more popular to say, well, let's just leave emotions out of it. And Let's be rational. Okay. If we're going to really be rational, we have to confront the reality of what we know from recent neuroscience. There is no such thing as thinking without feeling. And um, our feelings shape our understanding of what's true, of what's important, of our priorities, of where we pay attention. Our feelings are constantly affecting us. So we can be sort of idiotic about it and just let that happen as it happens and kind of things go sideways, mm-hmm. or we can be intentional and careful and say, okay, I know this is part of how I think. It's part of how I work. I'm going to work with that. You know, working in social and emotional learning, a lot of times if, if, if we feel, if we get some pushback from, let's say, parents, why are you teaching social emotional learning? You should just be focused on academic rigor. That is a, a great invitation to explain how learning is social and emotional, and you can't have academic rigor without further developing our social and emotional intelligence. So it's, it's nice to hear you put it the way that you just did. So when I was a teacher, which is quite a while ago, we thought that the social and emotional context either supported or inhibited learning. What we know now looking at the, like literally watching the brain in almost real time processing learning, we know that learning actually is a social brain function. Mm. So Mary Helen Imordino Yang is a cognitive neuroscientist and I love her work because she used to be a high school teacher. And she, as a, you know, former high school teacher, like has real world experience. unlike a lot of (laughs) cognitive neuroscientists. And there's a, there's a great interview with her on our website where we talked about this and the actual brain centers of learning. Like we don't have a brain center for calculus. 
a calculus came way after right. our brains were sort of all pretty settled in, in, in yeah. the structures that we have. So well, where do we learn calculus? Well, it turns out that we learn basically all academic learning happens in social brain areas. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, we're repurposing, but it also at the very same time that we're using these sort of social brain areas for, you know, calculus and history and, you know, literature and language. And at the very same time, those social brain areas have a, a higher priority, which is our survival and thrival as pack animals, as social animals. And so that has... I think it's a, if you think about the implication of that for you as somebody who's building an environment for learning and you say, everything I'm trying to achieve as an educator is built on the social brain. All of a sudden, relationships are the basis mm -hmm. and the priority. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun talking to you, Joshua. I have to say, you can, I can feel your passion from here. And you know, obviously you've been doing this for a long time, you know what you're talking about, but it, it, it seems to me that you still have great passion for this work. And I'm wondering what is the personal story behind all of this? You know, when you're growing up, what was your, um, your emotional intelligence development like? And I'm really, really curious about the sort of the social and cultural factors that may have informed and informed you and got you interested in emotional intelligence? Huh. You, you're a third culture kid, aren't you? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> that could be a very, very long conversation, but I'll, I'll tell you the short story. The shortest version is my parents were both statisticians. And <laughs> Interesting. You can imagine that in my uh, home growing up, emotions were not such a central part of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I grew up being afraid of feelings. Um, yeah. I grew up with this idea that the smartest person in the room had the was most important, had the most status, was the one you should listen to, and emotions were not part of being smart. And I was afraid of emotions to the point where when I first became a manager, uh, which is before I became a teacher, I remember I had an employee say to me, well, there's something going on with, you know, the people and team. maybe we should talk about it. And I slammed my hand down. I was like, I don't want to talk about it. I just want you people to get the work done. <laughs> I, I, I've learned a little bit more about managing people since then. <laughs> One of the pivotal moments for me was as a uh, classroom teacher, I'd been teaching for a few years and then I became an advisor. Mm. And I had several students whose parents were going through a divorce. And I had several students who were in various states of challenge. And I started feeling completely overwhelmed. I had no training to be an advisor, by the way. I was just like, oh, you're a good teacher. You should be an advisor, right? Just as it goes sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I went to Annabelle Jensen, who's the president of Six Seconds, and at that time was the uh, head of school where I taught. And I, sort of, with a lot of trepidation, said to her, I think I'm feeling depressed. Mm. And uh, she said, oh, that's interesting. 
I go, okay, first of all, that's not what you're supposed to say, right? Right. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Okay, something's <laughs> weird here. She said, tell me why. So I told her about my advisees and feeling overwhelmed and, you know, whatever. And then she did this crazy thing. And she looked at me and she said, well, gosh, it sounds like you have some really good reasons for being depressed. I think I would be depressed too if I were you. So she said to me, why don't you just let yourself be depressed for a few days? And then if you need help getting out of it, let me know. But probably, you know, you'll just, it'll just move on as you start figuring some of these things out. But, but it seems very reasonable what you're feeling. Yeah. And I walked out of her office and I'm like, oh, good. Okay. I'm, I'm depressed. That's good. That's the right thing to be feeling. Well, what happened is I just started experimenting with seeing my students. Like, I'm like, this was really interesting. What happened here? What if I do this with in my classroom? And I just started engaging my students in this different way where whatever was going on for them, I'm like, that's interesting. Tell me about it. And I just repeated that <laughs> process with them. You know, and with middle schoolers, there's always lots of feelings that you can. Yes. But what I experienced in that was my relationship with my students transformed. Mm. Uh, both as an advisor and as a humanities teacher, and then as a school administrator. And like all of a sudden, we were people working together in the process of learning. Mm. And I loved it. And wow. it just like that. So that's really was the, I don't know, the call for me was that little process where I'm just like, oh my gosh, what if I stop? hiding from my own and others' feelings and just go, oh, that's interesting. You know, it makes me think of lots of advisors that I've, or lots of teachers that I've met over the years that are in, also have an advisor role and the ones that have really struggled. They, they want to be good advisors, but they're struggling with connecting with their students and they're overwhelmed by the emotional experience of advisory. And they're scared of potentially emotional conversations that might come up during advisory. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how to, you know, push the needle a little bit further in helping them, um, you know, get ready for those kinds of conversations or start some of this emotional intelligence development work. So one of the reasons I think I was scared of feelings is because I didn't know what to do with them. And I thought that if somebody told me that they, they were feeling something big, that I would have to do something about that. And, you know, it now become somehow my responsibility or, and I know just saying that, that sounds a little bit silly, but I think that's how I was seeing it. And so the shift for me was to say, it's, this isn't my responsibility to fix people. And I don't have to do anything. Now, I can tell you in 25 years of full-time teaching people to teach emotional intelligence, I've had three times where it was cl like, clearly we needed some a professional to, to, to help. Um, but almost every one of thousands and thousands of conversations, just treating emotions as it's just a normal part of our lives and we can talk about it. 
it, we've been able to resolve things and figure things out and support each other in these conversations. I think my most advanced therapeutic technique, now I'm not a clinician, mm -hmm. but uh, my, so, so my most advanced therapeutic technique is to go for a walk with somebody mm -hmm. and talk and listen. And, you know, and like, I know when I'm feeling that like, oh, we should go for a walk and talk about this. I know things are getting a little complicated. Yes. Um, but it does help to know, you know, okay, there is, there is a counselor I can call if I need to. But generally, just saying, we can have a conversation about this. And I don't need to be dramatic about it. That's right. And I don't need to do any, I don't need to fix it. I, I don't, you know, if a, if a student or a parent or a colleague is saying, you know, I'm having trouble figuring out how to balance my bank account. Most of us don't go, ah, we can't talk about that. Call up there, you know, call, call the CFO. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not an accountant, but I can help you think about it. You know, so I guess what I'm saying is if we could take that more kind of neutral stance about emotions, what we would find is that they're less scary yeah. for us and for the people we're talking to. Yeah, that resonates with me. I, I, one of the most common pieces of feedback I get from teenagers that I work with when I ask them, what kind of advice would you give your teachers who really want to connect with you, but might not know how the most common uh, piece of advice is, can you, can you let them know that it doesn't have to be a huge deal, meaning they don't have to, you know, swoop in and be Superman but they can ask me how my day is going, or they can tell me that they're looking forward to seeing me in the play, or they can just sit beside me, you know, and listen. And, and that's often enough, um, mm. you know, in particular for people in, in an advisor role. So one of the traps that we face is walking down the hall back in the old days when we used to walk down halls. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I know a lot of us miss that. Yeah. Um, and say, you know, hey, how are you doing? And somebody says, oh, fine. And then we think we've just had an emotional connection. And I actually had my, my son when he was going to middle school was um, very, very upset. Mm -hmm. And I checked in with the principal and the principal said to me, oh, I see him in the hall. He's smiling. I asked him how it's going. He says, fine. I'm just like, okay, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. Because this, this sort of fake emotional connection is worse than, well, I don't know if it's worse, but it's not great. It's not great. It's like yeah. trying to have a really nourishing meal at a fast food restaurant. You know? <laughs> right. I yeah. think just getting a little bit real, but we don't need to do therapy. And we shouldn't try unless we're therapists. And maybe even then we shouldn't try and last time we spoke, we had talked about the, uh, briefly, we talked about the role that equity and anti-racism play in emotional intelligence and social emotional learning. And I know today you just had this Twitter chat on the um, your Lift Every Voice conference. I want to hear more about that. Why is equity and anti-racism connected to emotional intelligence? Well, my goal in social emotional learning is for everyone, kids and adults, to develop tools to help them navigate, um, to navigate school, to navigate life, 
to build stronger, healthier relationships, and ultimately to feel connected to and contributing to a better future for everyone. And if we try to do that work and we don't pay attention to the system, systemic structures and the cultural norms that put some people in positions of power over others that unfairly privilege or marginalize people, not based on anything they've done, but based on history. Um, we're really missing both, we're not gonna achieve the goal, but we're also missing an opportunity because in these equity conversations, there is tremendous richness of emotion and challenge and assumptions and patterns. And one of the things that I love about travel and about international schools and third culture kids is the experience of what in social emotional learning, we talk about perspective taking. And one of the things about getting out of your own cultural box is you start seeing and experiencing and saying, huh, is this wrong or is this different? And I think we we tend to jump into different is wrong. And then as we experience that more, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Anyway, there's this, this just this rich, rich, important conversations to have. So if we're wanting to, depending on what we mean by education and what our goals are, not just in social emotional learning, but in education in general, like what does it mean to to teach? What does it mean to learn? What does it mean to educate? And if yeah. what it means is that the people who we encounter are going to be equipped to flourish in their lives, we're gonna have to deal with these structures of inequity that are affecting our relationships and ourselves. And by the way, our own emotional expression. Speaking of which, you said something today on Twitter that I have to ask you about, because uh, I thought, ooh, you said, when emo- sorry, when emotions have become privilege, emotional expression is a form of resistance. Yeah, so we can talk about this in terms of race or gender or other cultural norms. Let's just start with gender. Okay. Um, So in most societies, it is acceptable for women to express sorrow and men to express anger. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you've experienced this, Helen, but you identify as female, you have been given a message, which you may or may not have accepted, but you've been given a message in lots and lots of subtle and not so subtle ways that it's okay for you to be sad, but that's about it. Yes. So have you ever found yourself um, really mad and crying? Yes. Yes. So why is that? Yeah. And why is it that I've found myself really afraid and yelling? So this is an example at a you know at a very macro level. But um, there's something called stereotype threat that I've learned yeah. about recently, which I, I didn't know that much about. I see not in your head. Yeah. That um, for example, one of my colleagues is a black man, and he told me he's had literally been told you you have to keep your head down, you have to not. You have to not come across as the angry black man, because if you do that, you'll be labeled that way forever. Yeah. And so there's this threat that if he acts that way, he'll now be painted by that stereotype, Mm -hmm. trapped in it. And so 
he's learned that anger is something that's dangerous for him to express. So now I, as a white man, have been taught it's the, the emotion you can express and it's okay for you to express as anger. For him, the emotion you're allowed to express is anger, but because you're black, you can't. And so now my emotional expression is part of my privilege. That's right. It also means for me to express sorrow or for him to express anything yes. is an act of resistance and it is a form of liberation. I like to ask everyone towards the end of our conversations about how how COVID is impacting you, but in particular, what values or beliefs as it relates to this this great work that you do, Joshua, um, what values or beliefs have been affirmed or challenged by mm. this pandemic? Gosh, I love that question. Just backing up for a second, I yeah. remember a year ago, a little more than a year ago, starting to talk to our partners and team members in China and Korea, then kind of spreading out from there. I remember in January, 2020, I was actually in Mexico and some of my colleagues from Korea and China were there and we we're talking about what's going on at home and there were people really scared. And, and then this rippling and rippling and rippling all over the world. And one of the things that I remember being on a call in March of 2020 and one of my colleagues in Turkey saying, this is the first time I ever felt like we were all actually together. Mm -hmm. Now, since then, and particularly in the equity space, recognizing we are not all in the same boat. That's right. Yeah. We might be all in the same storm. Yes. But some <laughs> of us have really much more comfortable boats. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that for me has been just something I've been confronted with over and over and over in the last year. And it's much easier to kind of close my heart to that. And it, you know, I have felt totally overwhelmed and being a CEO and having a team of people all over the world who I feel responsible to and having to say to them and say to our clients and say to our partners and say to our board, I have no idea. That is like the most horrible thing for <laughs> For a, a CEO with my kind of orientation, <laughs> like I like to have a plan and yes. everybody's going to know it. And so I imagine there are a lot of school leaders who likewise are in this place. And, and you know, we're in this place right now because while I think we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the uh, physical health aspects of the pandemic, the mental health and the financial health and the community health aspects are going to go on for a long time and we don't know what these ripples are going to be and so i think we're all in a place of pretty deep uncertainty and so i think one of the big gifts to me has been a little bit of reframing for myself about what it means to lead and to see that as a leader it is not and, and i would have said this to you a year ago but i wouldn't have really believed it as a leader it's not my job to have the answers as a leader, it's not my job to say, I know where we're going and I know exactly how to get there. It is my job to support a context where we can be together, where we can talk about this stuff, where we can adapt, where we can prioritize and pay attention and 
get this rapidly evolving data and bring it in and work with it. And so my job is much less about doing and much less about knowing, and it's much more about being. And that's just become so much more true for me in the last year. Thank you for being so honest and authentic about that. I think it's powerful to hear. I think those of us that have a lot of responsibility or or people are are looking to us for answers. It's it is uncomfortable and or it can be uncomfortable and it can be troubling and it can be dispiriting when when we have to respond. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But I, I really love what you said about about it's about being. Um, and, and I think if we think of it that way, then we can be a lot more intentional about, you know, kind of the way we show up with each other and, and for each other. So just one more thought on that, which is when things are going well, we don't actually need a lot of leadership. So it's in these moments when we find out what we're called to do as leaders. And if we're going to really... If we're really going to say, yeah, I want to lead, which I don't know that a lot of us want to say right now, but <laughs> we're right. going to say that, right. you know, this is the time when we find out what that really means. Well, Joshua, thank you so much. Can you tell us what, what's coming up with six seconds that um, we can look forward to? It's so important to look forward to things right now. So what, what's coming up around the corner that we can pay attention to? Well, we have some super powerful, fun projects we're working on. This month, uh, Lift Every Voice, which is a global forum on um, storytelling, social emotional learning, and anti-racism. And then in April, we're continuing a project we started uh, in part of our work with UNICEF, fueled us to get more into the space of climate and climate grief. Um, all educators who are talking, who are, who are listening at all to kids know that this is a really important issue for people under 30, especially even more under 25 and under 20. And uh, climate anxiety is becoming a very significant issue. The pandemic has not made that any less. So in April, we're working on climate of emotions, which is at the intersection of um, climate grief and um, intersectional activism. And again, a great space for us to meet people where they are and figure out how to support them and engage. And, and we don't have solutions, but we do, we can support the process. Yeah. And then just one, two, well, two more. In June, we have our Changemakers Conference. And then in November every year, we work on World Children's Day in partnership with UNICEF. For people who are interested in really bringing emotional intelligence to young people, this is an incredibly uh, beautiful opportunity where people in 200 countries and territories are celebrating World Children's Day by having conversations about emotions in these fun, playful, meaningful activities that help um, equip young people with tools that they need to support all of the sustainable development goals. Wow. Well, we will put links in the episode notes so, so people can follow you and follow Six Seconds and follow these great um, events that are coming up. I can't wait to hear more about a lot of those things. And I'm very curious about climate grief. I was just reading something about that a couple of days ago. But Joshua, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. was a really enjoyable conversation and your, your passion is infectious. And um, I think that our audience will be really appreciative to hear your perspective. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ellen. 
Thank you for listening. We really appreciate your support. Don't forget to subscribe and like this podcast, share it with your friends. And an additional reminder, if you are interested in this upcoming advisory and mentoring training, please let me know. I'll get you on the list for the pilot, which will come with its own extra perks. And also, don't forget that we have our Reclaiming Your Resilience course coming up on February 24th for student and teacher support professionals in our schools. Those are counselors, pastoral staff, social workers, psychologists, instructional coaches, and learning specialists. Do you have any questions or any subject areas that you would like us to address? Let me know. I'm all ears. I'm open to your feedback, and I'm excited to continue to bring you some great content here from some of the most interesting thinkers in our field. In the meantime, this is a reminder to take care of yourself as you care for others.